This is the last episode of Asia's Plastic First Mile, and I'm your host, Marcy Trent Long. Today, we're welcoming two plastic waste experts based here in Hong Kong to have a chat about what we've learned from producing this season. Doug Woodring and Brenda Heidema join us for an informal discussion about the challenges of plastic waste collection and recycling here in Asia. But because Hong Kong's experiencing a COVID-19 new wave, we had to do a Zoom interview. So excuse our audio quality a little bit on this episode and prepare yourself for some Zoom humor as well. Doug, why don't you, maybe you could give a quick introduction. So my name is Doug Woodring. I'm the founder of Ocean Recovery Alliance, which is a nonprofit based in Hong Kong and California. I've been working in Asia for over 25 years. I've been focused on plastic and ocean protection for about 12 years now. We're also the founder of the Plasticity Forum, which is a eight or nine year now running event focused solely on the solutions and innovations for Second Life Plastic. We launched that at the Rio Earth Summit in 2012 and we've added in 13 cities since then, the last one being in Bangkok with the United Nations Environment event in November last year. Yeah, you've had great success with those plasticity events. And in fact, our season two plasticity was was based on uh, the plasticity event in Malaysia. And uh, Brenda, you went to the plasticity event in Bangkok, right? I did. It was really amazing to see all the different sectors of industry and consumers and also academia come together and, and, and think about creative solutions for how we tackle such a, such a large problem. So Brenda, what have you been up to lately? Give us your update. Yeah, so I run Asia, our Asia operations for First Mile. First Mile is uh, based out of Pittsburgh, but we operate in Haiti, Honduras, and Taiwan. And we pick up trash as a way of creating employment opportunities for otherwise disenfranchised communities. And then we take that trash and we recycle it and sell it along as polyester yarn to, to brands that can then use it in their goods that go on along to final consumers. What was that? Ding. Is someone using a microwave? That was my toaster. Sorry, I forgot I put it on. (laughs) You thought you could slide that one by, didn't you? I totally forgot I had put it on. I was like 10 minutes ago. I was just, I was about to give a webinar yesterday afternoon. And the first time in history that I've been here when a delivery man came, he rang the doorbell 30 (laughs) seconds before the (laughs) webinar started. (laughs) anyway sorry (laughs) all right we're just gonna live with that toaster actually it's kind of a fun part of the (laughs) discussion so um so brenda if your toast is ready and you're ready to (laughs) talk a little bit um you started the series off with taiwan definitely the gold standard of pet plastic recycling um can you summarize again what those success factors that you discussed uh, that Taiwan had to use to establish such a successful PET recycling ecosphere in the country? Yeah, absolutely. And Taiwan in the 80s was actually called Trash Island because they had such a huge trash problem. The government and the, the people of Taiwan realized that the rate at which they were drowning in trash. And so they realized they had to do something about it. So they actually asked the, the Japanese government to help 
because at the time uh, Japan was the, the gold standard and is there now, you know, Taiwan and Japan are, are the top in the world right now today. So what the Taiwanese government figured out was one, it, it created financial incentives to recycle by putting a, a cost to throw your trash away. So the more you recycle now, the less expensive it is to get rid of your, your trash in your household. Um, they also made it really easy to access recycling. They set up recycling points throughout the city. The recycling comes by in large cities and the municipalities. And in places where there's not government-supported municipalities, there is a culture of freelance workers who go through and, and they're able to make a living from picking up trash and, and recycling, not just plastic, but uh, recycling cardboard and metal as well. And that combination allows them to to have a good life and to, to create some extra income for them. And then lastly, what they figured out and what they do really, really well is that they start the education of the importance of recycling at a very young age. So even in kindergarten, students learn that they actually have to wash and rinse their recycling. They have um, like classroom monitors. So they learn the importance of keeping your waste stream separate so that you have a high quality of recycling later on. And so those three things together is really what makes Taiwan a, an amazing trifecta for, for the success and the high recycling rates that they enjoy today. We just here in Hong Kong had our waste charging scheme, which is the financial incentive that I think you're referring to in Taiwan. Um, we just had it delayed for another year after 17 yeah. years of trying to put it in. So, right. Doug, you were one of the first stakeholders in Drink Without Waste Consortium here. That was our episode two and three. And when it started here in Hong Kong, in 2018. And currently there's a PET plastic recycling plant expected to go online at the end of the year, but it's, it's not really clear exactly how they're going to be sourcing all the PET and HTPE um, materials. Is there anything that we missed? Could there have been any other way to approach PET recycling in Hong Kong? Well, I, I think it hasn't even started yet. So it's, there's, I think we can't really discuss it. I think you're alluding to is how they're going to get the feedstock from the city itself into that machine with the channels. And one of the reasons Drink Without Waste was set up and that we got involved was to make sure that there was uh, widespread approval across the industry and NGOs and other stakeholders within this group, this consortium of stakeholders, that everyone would agree that a reward or some kind of guaranteed revenue value would be applied to PET and HDPE if it was collected. And similar to Taiwan and Japan, unless you have either a cost to dispose of something or a reward and a value to bring it in, nothing will ever happen. So without one of those, it will be virtually impossible to get large volumes of material here and in most other countries as well. Yeah. And okay. so that's, that's not yet uh, proven out. It's also like not just a challenge, Doug, like you said, it's not just something that Hong Kong has to figure out. This is like the biggest challenge for any waste collection system across the world is how do you get the feedstock and how do you get it in a way that's um, at a high enough quality, so clean and not cross-contaminated so that it, it's actually easy to recycle. 
Right. So I think um, Drink Without Waste has uh, made a proposal or they're working on a proposal and everyone did agree that we want some kind of reward and value for material when it's brought in. I think now the government is creating its own ideas and policy around that, but it's not yet announced. I believe this year there will be a stakeholder engagement uh, sessions around this with the community and hopefully drink without wastes suggestions can be taken strongly because it is a it's the first ever industry consortium with industry ngos and stakeholders for any big uh, industry in hong kong it's this issue that plastic recycling and that plastic for smile is so complicated right and requires so many different stakeholders. So in the Hong Kong Drink Without Waste, it's an amazing 40 different participants and getting 40 people to agree on a strategy seems pretty cumbersome. And they are planning and doing some of that in Indonesia with the World Economic Forum and GPAP. But before we get on to that, I wanted to go back to this value discussion and placing a value on the PET plastic, which seemed to be central to McKinsey.org's pilot recycling program in Indonesia. And I don't know, Brenda, if you had time to look at that, if you could maybe comment on how that pilot program is, is using value and, and maybe just what you thought about that program, if you've seen that kind of program elsewhere as well. Whereas in other countries, the, the value of plastic, which is the same all over the world, um, is enough to, to incentivize people to actually do something about it, meaning to, to either clean it up or to not throw it into the landfill. It's really interesting because what we're trying to do is, is what McKinsey's doing is essentially getting people to agree trash and plastic waste has intrinsic value and that as a society we're going to agree to creating value behind it and so it's almost like a we're trying to create like a, a separate market for it if you can think of it like that where it's not worth anything right now but if we all agree it's worth something then we start doing something we can start collecting it and we can start trading on it and that's just a really big challenge right to create that sense of this is previously something trash and that's disposable and you can just throw it away to like know that's an actual valuable asset or a resource to be mined. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face and that the McKinsey faces as well as like getting people to recognize something as valuable, one, and then two, getting it at a place where it's not contaminated and it's a high enough quality that you can recycle it and actually make money from it. Right. And the, the other problem there is that there's no uh, cost on the negative externalities of the trash polluting the water right. and polluting the environment. So, you know, the, the value of recycling something has one type of value, which is the absolute value of that material used in the second life uh, for a new product. The problem is the value of cleaning the city and cleaning the waters and cleaning the ocean is not put into any of this calculation. So we're not able to extract that unless you put a waste charge into the cities and communities, then alleviate people's ease of just throwing it anywhere. And that, Doug, you've worked a lot with the UN and you've got your plasticity events as well in terms of looking at like that big picture, which includes some of these the value and the costs of the externalities. What do you think of the GPAP and the World Economic Forum's 
approaches to developing financing infrastructures for plastic recycling in Indonesia and even Vietnam? Well, I would say it's necessary. I mean, any of these things, it's we need all hands on deck and there's no one solution. So you need many, many things to happen. By no means do I think that is a silver bullet to solve things. Usually those multilateral financing institutions only will fund large projects. And uh, it's hard, trash is localized. So every small village and community in the world needs some kind of solution itself, even if it's just a little shredding machine and a cleaning machine and a baler or something to get it into the ecosystem of supply chain that can go into the next bigger county or the next bigger province where someone can buy it and take it. And usually these financing mechanisms are not able to fund small machines in in all of these thousands of jurisdictions that need help, nor do local banks do anything to support that kind of business. So it's it's a very, there's a huge gap between, um, you know, what's needed and what is uh, even now being proposed, I would argue. And that's actually something where First Mile, where we've been able to like fit in and help whether it's interest-free microloans or actually partnering with bigger brands. And so actually somebody like HP has come in and they're acting as the bank for a recycler in Haiti, which is going to allow them to to have a better recycling process and, and have a better product at the end of it. But it's taken companies like First Mile to be able to do that. And even if we can't do it ourselves, it's connecting the dots, but it's definitely outside of like the larger institutions, the financial institutions that exist today. So even all the guys out there like Circulate Capital, it feels like every time you turn around, there's some new impact investing uh, group on plastic, but that's not getting deep enough into the weeds to solve this small infrastructure problem? Yeah, not really. And the other thing is they're really looking to make money on their investment. And this is not an easy space to make money on. And I think it has to go back to the social and environmental benefit of improving waste infrastructure should be done because the city and the village and the town and the state and the country needs that help. Not because someone's trying to make 20 bucks on the next year margin of some investment. Now, of course, you want it to be sustainable, but it's you can't go from zero to 100 and all of a sudden start investing in things that are going to be making a big amount of money when what really needs is broad-based, some kind of financing mechanism or actually just donation or funding access to ramp up the infrastructure and the recycling capacities or, you know, the collection systems in, in a lot of these places. And a lot of them are not investable in, that, in those scenarios that are sort of coming into the market yet. They're just too small. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, people, there's smart people all over the world and there's hustlers and entrepreneurs all over the world where there is an opportunity to make money. It's being made. Somebody's already tapped into that. So it's almost like it's a, I see it as a disjointedness of like, there's all these puzzle pieces, but it's, it's, it, what's missing is the, the larger, like the, the connector to be able to take the little bits of like we need little pockets of capital we don't need a big fund and and it's the also the ability to to be able to fail 
and to be able to try things because trash is a really difficult, it's a low margin industry and much more localized and, and looking for like solutions because one size won't fit all as well. And so there's just lots of challenges facing it. So I, I think to go to Brenda's point, you know, this is a perfect example that this funding gap, if you put an analogy with philanthropy, philanthropists will fund a school or a, a program for education or something that, that has zero economic return to the donor. So the donor's not expecting to get a revenue stream coming back. If, if you think that the environment is important for us and that people should have a clean environment, then why are, the, why are there not donations happening for some guy to buy a little machine and a little shredder and a little grinder uh, and then not worry about whether he makes money or whether you get a return on that investment? Donors should not expect returns on investment anyway usually in philanthropy, unless they're doing something where they've got a, a mixture of some, you know, new impact investment, which is the new buzzword. So then the counter to that is the argument that is whether or not the companies that are producing the waste and you go back to producer responsibility schemes, that maybe those are the people, though, that then should also be doing the, the well, donating. I I was I was just going to lead into that. So okay. it, that's an, that's an, that's exactly what has to happen, hundred percent, and it will happen. So that is one of your favorite subjects. And and Doug, also maybe you could comment on you know there's all the the ocean plastics charter. There's all these companies that have committed to you know their their bottle will be fifty percent recycled within I think by 2025. That seems really ambitious right now. Right. So just to finish on the other one. So Brenda's good example of HP helping to fund the recycling facility in uh, Haiti is exactly what is going to be starting to happen and need to happen because you're going to have increasing need for plastic offsetting companies who are going to want to show that they're offsetting and to fill the gap either to create a new supply chain for their own materials, which you just asked about. It's you know, how is a huge brand going to increase their recycled content from zero to 50% or 10% to 50% in just four years? There's no supply chains out there that can handle that kind of volume and bring it back into the market. I mean, Brenda's working with some of it. But what we need is these companies through their EPR programs and voluntary extended producer responsibility say, yes, I, I, I'm going to donate. Uh, $50,000 to make four booms and nets in this community to put in the river to make sure that that plastic is recovered. And that is not going to be an investment. It's not meant to return money, but it's meant to get away some of the negative externalities that are created, maybe not directly because of that company, but that company can now hang their hat on that and say, through our responsibility schemes, and we know that we have to use plastic for these certain parts of our products, uh, we are going to guarantee that we're getting this amount out of the environment somewhere. And that's where the funding can come in to these machines and equipment for capture, gathering, and, and uh, basic recycling needs. But and the other thing I would say that in conversations and what we're hearing in industry is not only uh, 
is the material, the, the feedstock, like the recycled content not available? And so there's the additional challenge of as consumers become more demanding and as, as we become more aware of just recycled content, the next question is going to be, well, then in similar ways that in the textile industry is who made my clothes, it's, well, how was my recycled content collected? Um, and that's just another, that's the next problem that, that companies will have to face of like with the murkiness of the supply chains of recycled content, how do you get around that? And it's just by asking questions and following the trash, the trash down all the way to its original source and making sure that people are being treated responsibly and ethically and, and they're having an opportunity at dignified work. So it sounds like we've gone through a couple of themes of like measuring by companies is really important and having them understand what their plastic footprint is important that financing these large infrastructure projects is really important, but also we need to get down to the smaller level of small infrastructure, whether that be through philanthropy or whether that be um, through corporates getting, getting more involved and this issue of, of charging for waste at creating value. And finally, um, starting with this initial separation of wet and dry so that the plastic recycling quality is really important. Did I miss anything? Does anyone have any concluding remarks? For me, what it kind of comes down to is we have to educate ourselves and sure there's things that big companies and that we should do at like legislation levels, but there's also things we can do as, as an individual and individually it's, it's around educating yourself. And I think you did a really good job in, in your podcast series of the differences you know, between Hong Kong, Indonesia, Taiwan, where they are. Um, and as individuals, I think we have a responsibility to know what is recyclable in our local municipality, what can go into the bins and what, what does happen within. You know, if you have a little bit of interest, you can read and even the podcasts are a great resource, but just a Google search also helps a lot. So on my side, we did a study with the UN, which we launched in November. They asked us to, to judge and score 580 global commitments worldwide on plastic pollution made by governments, the private sector, and the civil society. And the, the reason for asking for this scoring was that they felt the commitments really weren't making that much difference globally because people would make a commitment, but they wouldn't follow through. There was no funding. There was no leadership. There was no, you know, whatever, whatever happened. And uh, now we have a scorecard and a whole new toolkit to basically create version 2.0 commitments and make those, uh, basically incubate those commitments to be much stronger and better out the gate so they can be uh, scaled, replicated, and faster and I think this is a great area when you blend this with EPR, extending producer responsibility, and you have corporates who really get much more engaged in this, some piece of the story within their own spectrum of use. It's a great way to propagate education, awareness, and a pretty big change in a short period of time. So. Hopefully this is something that can be uh, seen a bit more in the next couple of years. Yeah, I really hope so. Like to, looking forward to hearing more about it. All right, Brenda and Doug, thanks so much for your time today. That was really helpful and appreciate all your support on the podcast series. Look forward to talking to you guys soon. Thank you, Marcy. Keep up the good work. We appreciate it. <laughs> yes, we do. It was good to talk to you, Doug. Thanks, Brenda. 
That was our last episode of Season 9, Asia's Plastic for Smile. If you like the season, please rate it on your favorite podcast app and spread the word. Sustainable Asia Podcast is a small, independent media organization, so help us continue this good work by supporting our Patreon page or just telling your friends about us. We'll return with Season 10, Marine Protected Areas from China to Antarctica in September. It'll be a fascinating view from China experts on why protecting Antarctica waters is good for China and the world. Season 9, Asia's Plastic First Mile is hosted by me, Marcy Trent Long. Uyu Fei is our associate producer and was also the sound engineer on this episode. Alexander Mobison created the intro-outro music made from repurposed and recovered waste items. Special thanks to the Journalism and Media Studies Center at the University of Hong Kong, where Sustainable Asia is recorded. Thank you.